So we'll be looking at Psalm 46, the entirety of the psalm. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's word. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it was August 23rd, 2011, and I was going to work on a normal, typical day of work. I was working at the U.S. Geological Survey in Reston, Virginia, so just outskirts of D.C. And about 1.50 p.m. as I was working, I heard this rumble. It sounded like, a, sounded like a, a garbage truck or something, something ramming into the building almost. And my, I was on a computer chair, and my chair began to wobble back and forth, back and forth. And I got up, and I walked to the other side of the room where this other geologist was working. And so it took about five or six seconds, and it clicked in my mind, this is an earthquake. I, we are in an earthquake, and I couldn't believe it. It's not, it wasn't my first guess. We live in Virginia. We don't live in California. And I don't know if, I'll have to talk to some of you later if you felt it much here in Smithfield, but north of the epicenter, the epicenter was in Mineral, Virginia, which is about central. I was north of there. I heard it was worse at the north of the epicenter. But I can still remember that, that uneasy feeling of a 5.8 magnitude earthquake, right? There was damage, there were no lives lost, but it was unsettling, and it was strange. And actually, working at the U.S. Geological Survey was interesting because that's where all the news people came to talk to the geologists. They study earthquakes, they study volcanoes there, and so it's where everybody came to find the answers. What is happening? What is going on? And it was felt all the way up to New York. But there are fewer things that are unsettling to feel when the very ground beneath you that, is so, that should be sturdy, that should not be moving, is moving. It was surreal. And you know, earthquakes can happen in our lives as well. That kind of unsettling, that shaking that rocks your life, in ways 
you never thought possible. When you experience a sudden death, for instance, in your family, or a sudden sickness, when you lose a job, when there's marital strife that you didn't expect. For me, it was when I was 14 and my dad died suddenly. It was an earthquake that shattered our lives. And what is it for you? I'm sure you have something. Right. It was an earthquake. Where do you run when, when the earthquakes hit? Where do you go? Where do you turn? And when you're not in that moment, are you preparing yourself for those days? Because they're surely going to come. They're, they're going to be here, inevitably, the longer we live here in this earth, this broken world. In his book, Battling Unbelief, John Piper defines anxiety this way. He says, anxiety is the loss of confident security in God owing to feelings of uneasiness or foreboding that something harmful is going to happen. That's what anxiety is. Losing your confidence, confident security in God because you're constantly fearing something bad is going to happen. Has that ever been your experience? Do you ever get caught in a habitual paralyzing fear that something bad is going to happen? Well, what's ironic is that most of our life is actually quite tranquil, isn't it? It's actually uneventful, fairly peaceful in most cases. But we live so much of our lives fearing what may never actually happen. And so the question this morning I want to present to you is, how do we prepare ourselves for hard times without filling our hearts with anxiety about the inevitability of those hard times? And it really goes back to what we're telling ourselves. What are we preaching to ourselves? What are we believing? What are we filling our minds with that causes that anxiety? And so to battle that is fill our minds with the truth of who God is. For us. That's what this psalm does for us this morning. We need to do several things as we think about God. We need to understand how He is our help, how He is our refuge and strength when the storms of life descend upon us. We must rest and receive the kingdom that He's given to us to live in that cannot be shaken. And we must be still and know that He is God the one who directs all the world's events, and every seemingly small event in your life, he is in control of. When everything is shaking around you, Jesus can calm our fears. He can satisfy our desires. He can subdue our hearts. Because we have this kingdom that cannot be shaken. I want to share with you three truths to prepare us as we... Prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's Supper this morning. The first is that we have a refuge in the storm. The second is that we have a river of delight. And third is that we have a reigning king. The psalm is divided in three major parts. Selah, if you see in the bottom right of your scripture, Selah is this um, pause that divides the psalm into three sections. So we're going to get our three truths from each of those sections. The first section is from verses 1 through 3. We have a refuge in the storm. Look at the first verse. God is our refuge and strength, a very present 
help in trouble. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is God is for us. God is ours. He's ours. He's with us. He is ours. Let's focus on that idea, first of all, that God is yours. He is for you. He is with you. He's not against you if you're trusting in Him. And He is a help in two ways. He's our refuge and He's our strength. He's our refuge in the sense that He he protects us from danger. He is the safe fortress for us to be in when the storms are around us. And He's also our strength. We are not our own strength. We rely on His strength. And it's His strength that enables us to carry on and be durable. Martin Luther wrote several hymns in his life. And one of those was A Mighty Fortress. And A Mighty Fortress, we sang earlier in the service, is based upon this song. And for Martin Luther, and I'll talk more later about his struggle with depression and anxiety, but look at the first line of A Mighty Fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. See, God for for Martin Luther was this fortress. He was this refuge that he turned to and he wrote beautiful hymns about. He knew he could turn to God in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of his life and the struggles. We also read in verse 1 that God is a very present help in trouble. What does that mean? He is a helper who is intensively found. He is very much found. He is easily found. What that means practically is God doesn't hide from you, although we hide from Him. When you run to God, He is going to always be there. He's going to be found. He's not into playing hide and go seek. As my kids have gotten older, uh, you know, when you play hide and go seek with a two-year-old, three-year-old, they cannot stay hidden, right? They can't, they, the excitement is too much for you to come find them. They're going to run out and find you, right? But when they get to be four, five, and six, I have a seven-year-old now, they get good at hiding. They get good at hiding to the point where you can't find them and you have to call out for them. Where are you? Come out, I can't find you. You're hiding too well. God's not like that. He can always be found. When you ask God to reveal himself to you, he will. That is a challenge I have for anyone who questions God's existence, an agnostic atheist. If you, if you genuinely in your heart seek God, I dare you to pray that. and He'll find you. He can always be found. He is a very present help in trouble. Even when there is trouble. Look, he's not... Uh, He's not pushing away the reality that trouble is in our lives. Look at verse 2. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. That word moved is repeated twice in this psalm. Mountains moving. That's essentially what an earthquake is, right? The world moving. That's the way life can feel. But if you flip a little fast forward up to verse 5, what does not move? God is in the midst of her, the city. Verse 5, she shall not be moved. 
There is a place that you can go in God's presence where you will not be moved, where you can find tranquility in the midst of the chaos. And we also read that the, the, the waters roar. Look at verse 3. The waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's all this poetic language about how the world is not safe. The world is not good. You know, the Hebrews were not a seafaring people. I don't know if you knew that. They, 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 were, not, they were not like the Philistines who came from a seafaring people. They were land people. Right? They stayed on the land, they farmed, stayed in the towns and the cities. The seas for the Hebrews were seen as chaotic, dangerous, not safe. And so here we get this language that the waters are roaring and foaming. The sea for the Hebrews was this, this area of chaos. So what makes you afraid today? What's making you afraid? Recently, I was afraid when I was driving across a bridge. And uh, I don't typically get afraid of bridges. And uh, I've talked to our music director, Cindy. She doesn't like bridges. But there's this one bridge, and maybe she knows this bridge, over, it's called the Robert Norris Jr. Bridge, and it takes you over to Kilmarnock, so up in the northern neck. And we went over this bridge, and it is narrow, and it's high, and there's no shoulder, and you can easily see over the edge. And it made even me feel uneasy as the driver. And Hannah was definitely uneasy next to me as she could see the water below and telling me to keep my eyes on the road. Yeah, eyes on the road. That was scary. And I was scared coming back as well, and I don't really plan to go over that bridge anytime soon. But what makes you afraid? And where do you find safety? There's this great scene in the Gospels, I'm sure you know it, Luke chapter 8, when the disciples are with Jesus and he falls asleep in the boat and the storm comes and he stays asleep. And they wake him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He, he wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. Do you remember what he said to them? Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled. Why? Who is this man? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. He had control. They began to fear him more than the storm, because he quieted it with a word. In 2019, our church went to England on a missions trip, and one of the cool things we got to do on our days off of work were to go uh, in the countryside and see some castles. There's tons of castles in England. I didn't know how many there were, but we got to tour a few of them, and one of them, it was really cool because you, you got to take this, um, you'd put a headset in, and you could tour through all the, the ruins of this old medieval castle and go through um, the downstairs and upstairs and around the grounds, and it was beautiful, But it just reminded me of how people lived in fear those days. That was the only way you could have security, was knowing you had built up these strong walls. And that's where they went for security and safety. And don't we often do that in our lives, where we try to build all these walls of protection, these hedges of protection around us, 
so that we, are, we feel safe. These fortresses that we've constructed. We don't need to construct our own fortresses to find safety. We have safety in Jesus. He is the one who keeps us safe. We are invincible, actually. You and I are invincible until he calls us home. Every day of your life is numbered, and he'll be with you. So Jesus is asking you and us today, where is your faith today? Just like he asked the disciples, he's asking us as well. So that's the first truth, that we have this refuge in the storm we can always run to when we are anxious. Our second truth is beginning in verse verse 4 through 7. Let me read the first verse there. So, So verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There is a river. You know, rivers are life-giving, aren't they? Rivers are are wonderful. Rivers in the Bible are mentioned, and they are almost always spoken of positively as these places of life and beauty. I grew up going to a beautiful river in, in the western part of the state near Lexington, Virginia, a river that flows into the James called the Maury River. And I would argue it's one of the most beautiful rivers in the state. It flows through this mountain gorge. And I, rem- I've, I grew up going there since I was a baby. have lots of memories there, playing in the rapids and jumping over the rocks. The Maury River is, is visually beautiful. You see it coming through this, this mountain gorge. A river is audibly uh, beautiful as well, the way it sounds, right? The water going over the rapids. I remember many a night sleeping at this cabin over the river, near the river, where you could hear the rapids at night, and it just helps you sleep. And they're physically pleasant, aren't they, rivers? It's, It's awesome to jump into a river and swim and to be refreshed in the heat of the summer. And I'm thankful we get to live near rivers over here as long as they're not flooding. And rivers are important in the Bible. Genesis 2, we read of a river in Eden that branches off into four main tributaries. But the river was to give life, wasn't it? We read of a river in Ezekiel chapter 47, where in this vision of Ezekiel, the water, the river, is flowing from the temple, beginning into a river, and then it flows to the Dead Sea, giving life to everything around it and healing the Dead Sea and making the Dead Sea live. It conquers the sea and it heals everything it touches, flowing from the temple. It says in verse 8 of Ezekiel 47, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. It's this picture of the renewal of all things the new heavens and the new earth. It reminds me of when Jesus in his ministry touched lepers. Typically, if you touched a leper, the leper would transmute its, his or hers uh, leprosy to you. You would be unclean because you touched the leper. But as Jesus touched lepers, he brought healing to them and their leprosy went away. You see this reversal of the curse, reversal of the fall brought about with Jesus. 
And in Revelation 21 and 22, we, we also we see this water theme continue where there is no more sea, meaning no more chaos. The seas are no more, but what do we see? What water feature do we see in Revelation 22? We see a river, don't we? A river of life that cleanses us and washes us. Rivers were where baptisms occurred in the Gospels and in Acts. So whenever we see rivers, we think of these baptismal overtones where bathed, were cleansed in the waters of God. And our baptism represents our internal cleansing from sin. So that's why it's important. He's saying in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And who is the city? What is the city? Well, the city is God's people, isn't it? The city is the church. And this is the kingdom that you're a part of. If you are a believer in Christ today, you are citizens of two kingdoms. You're a citizen of this nation, this temporal nation that's, that exists for a time, the United States of America, but you are also citizens of heaven. You're citizens of the people of God, of which this church is an outpost of this heavenly kingdom that you are a part of. And it says, the river makes glad the city of God. This is where we take delight, is the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. The Lord of hosts is with us, verse 7. Why are we delighting? Why are we joyful? Because God is with us. The morning is dawning and joy comes in the morning. I usually get here on Sunday mornings about uh, 6 o'clock to wrap up things, final, finalize the sermon, um, print off papers, and I get here at 6 and it's dark, and then I get to see the sun just start to come up. And I see the pink across the sky. As you're looking out the windows there, it comes right up over those line of trees. And then the sun begins to, to come up. And every time, on Sunday mornings, I'm reminded that God's mercies are new every time that sun comes up. As surely as the sun rises, His grace and love are toward us, and He loves us. And when we see that, that God is with us, in verse 7, it's the same word for Emmanuel. God with us, that God is with us most chiefly, most importantly through Christ, even though the nations rage. Look at verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts. The nations are raging, aren't they? There is no peace, there is no settledness, there is a roaring and a tottering of the kingdoms today. But we see the answer to it when God gives his voice. What happens? The earth melts. I'm reminded in Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, where he says, One little word will fell him, will kill our enemy, Satan. One little word from God is all it takes. So whose voice is more powerful? God's voice or the nation's voice? God's voice, isn't it? So whose voice should we be listening to? God's voice, that's right. 
And when we place ourselves in the, in the church, in the presence of God, it should result in joy, shouldn't it? Ideally, we should grow in delight and joy, but that's not always the case. It doesn't come easy. In a letter to his friend Melanchthon, on August 2nd, 1527, Luther wrote, quote, I spend more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. You see, Luther struggled mightily with depression and anxiety in the midst of this reformation that had begun in the church and wars and battles and uprisings in cities and towns. He struggled internally a lot with, did he make the right decision? Was he doing what was best for the church? And he battled with God. But he said this, Indeed, such a trial is the very best sign of God's grace and love for man. You hear that? Such a trial is the very best sign of God's grace. He saw the trial he was going through as God's sovereign grace to him. So his advice? At such a time it is well to pray, read, or sing. He loved music. He loved singing. And Psalm 46 reminded Luther of the trials through which God already had safely delivered his people. He trusted God would again be their helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Finally, He said, we too should sing. Ryan Griffith writing on this says, Singing does more than raise our heart's affection for the triune God. It steals us with confidence to stand defiant against our enemy. It's not the prince of darkness grim for whom we tremble. No, we tremble in the presence of our Lord Jesus, whose gospel is the declaration of our enemy's demise. His kingdom is forever. So every time we gather friends, and sing together, we are encouraging each other with this truth that our enemy is powerless over us. And so let me encourage you, if you're experiencing joylessness in your life, battle it with treasuring Christ more. Looking to Christ more. Looking to what He's accomplished for you more and more. Jared Wilson writes this, and I think it's so true. Too many of us spend our Christian lives waiting on something big to happen. Completely oblivious to the fact that the biggest thing that could have ever happened to us already did. And it's more than enough. The biggest thing that could have ever happened to you already did. When God saved you in Christ. There's nothing more that could be uh, earth-shattering, radically changing, transforming than that, your salvation. If you're a Christian, take hold of that. Find joy in that. Find joy in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When I was a young Christian, I struggled with, was, was it going to be satisfying to be a Christian? Am I going to be happy? 
Am I going to be content as a Christian, giving up all these things that the world offers? Is, is God really wanting me to be joyless? was really my thought. Am I just supposed to walk around sad all the time? Let me read Psalm 1611 to you again. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The greatest joy is to know God. The greatest joy is to commune with Him. That is where we will have delight and joy. The last truth this morning is that we have a reigning king. We have a reigning king. Look at verse 8 and following. Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'm going to jump right to the application there. We're told to do two things. To behold and to be still. Behold and be still. What are we to behold? Behold God's works. Behold God's works. Rehearse His salvation in your life what he's done in your life, but also in the Bible. The greatest salvation event in the Old Testament that was rehearsed again and again and again was the crossing of the Red Sea. We read about it all over the place. The Old Testament believers did that. And in the New Testament, it's the cross. Go to the cross. Rehearse God's works in your life as well. How he saved you. What he did to you. We're called to be still. As well. Be still and know. How do you take that? Be still. Well, this is not a call to go live in a monastery, to become a monk or a nun. But it's really this put away your frantic agendas and submit to God's agenda for your life. Drop your hands, put your work down. Stop thinking. Stop going to your work email on Sundays. Cease. That's what Sabbath means. Cease. Rest. Stop. One main reason we are told to keep the Sabbath is this, that we rest, that we know we're not God. We are to be still and know that He's God. Sundays should be summed up with these two commands. Be still and know. Be still and know. It's for you. It's for your own good. And what are we to know? That he'll be exalted everywhere, right? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Scotty Smith writes, Today and every day, God calls us to cease our striving, have done with our vexing, and forsake our worrying, to be still, to know that your God isn't to shut up and shut down, it's to get low and be expectant. For grace always runs downhill. So God tells us, I will be exalted among the nations, even throughout the earth. Not might, but will. God says, I will be exalted. And brothers and sisters, we're his messengers. We're the ones, the instruments he's going to use to get that word out, to evangelize. We have an evangelism class this fall. Come on out. 
and learn how to introduce people to Jesus with me and Bob. I will be exalted in the nations. We are called to be his instruments. And he calls himself the Lord of hosts. He says this in two different refrains. The Lord of hosts is with us. What does that word host mean? Well, it really means the armies of heaven. The armies of heaven. We sing this in the doxology, don't we? Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. The armies. God the king over all creation. And what is the result? The result's peace. The result is that we have peace. And I, re- I get this from verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. That is the hope that everything, every part of the world will be just as it was intended to be. And that is shalom, peaceful, without war, without fighting. We, we get this hope crystallized in Revelation 21, where John writes, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The chaos was no more. And he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That should change the way we think about heaven. Heaven is not us going up to God. Heaven is really coming down to us. The new heavens will be here on earth. And he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. To the thirsty I will give from the spring the water of life without payment. You will drink freely from the river in the new heavens and the new earth. Pray with me. Father, thank you for being a good father. We thank you that you have not cast us aside because of our sin, but you're drawn to us out of mercy and compassion. You fill us. You satisfy us. Would you now send us in your love, being filled with your grace, your mercy, which is free. Nothing we have earned has given us this spot as your adopted children, but only your choice, only your grace. So let us go freely, let us go happily out into the world, sharing this good message of hope and salvation in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.